The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests, and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. ATF line 47, uh, we are declaring emergency at this time. We have smoke in the cockpit. I repeat, emergency aircraft, floor 7. Line 47 is a uh, Roger emergency aircraft, smoke in the cockpit. Line 47, fly the aircraft whenever you have a chance. Please say your souls on board and intention. Right now, our souls on board are 191. And what was the second that question? Do you know Fuel remaining for... And we have uh, 8,700 pounds of fuel. And would you relay the company for us as well, please? Point four seven, welcome. Point four seven, Roger. Clear direct Honolulu Airport. Direct Honolulu Airport, Point four seven. Roger that. Do you want us still at 250? No, no. no. Speed is your discretion. Whatever you need to do for Point four seven. Just going to maintain one zero thousand. Just advise if you're unable to maintain the altitude or anything else you need, sir. All right, here we go. Roger. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard our very first episode of the Squawk Ident podcast, Flight One, recorded on the 2nd of October, 2019 and remastered on January 5th, 2023 at the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. Allow me to start this pre-flight briefing by saying, welcome aboard. As we prepare to depart on this journey together, let us go over some of the entertainment features of this podcast. On each flight of the Squawk Ident podcast, we will explore the highlights from some of Aviator Tony's recent flight sequences at one of the biggest airlines in the world, Legacy Airlines, an alias to my employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. We will discuss what to expect while navigating a career as a professional airline pilot, what events or abnormal operations could possibly happen, and often do transpire. We also discuss how and why pilots' flight schedules often fall apart. From dealing with weather, conflicting personalities in a professional environment, and handling mechanical issues, we dive into all the typical scenarios that airline pilots deal with in day-to-day operations. We will also explore such topics, such as how to stay fit and healthy, in a segment called On the Run. With a career where most of your time is spent sitting at the controls of an aircraft, staying healthy, disruptions to circadian rhythms, and unhealthy eating habits often become a very difficult challenge to overcome. Since maintaining a first-class FAA medical certificate is a condition of employment for all Part 121 airline pilots in the U.S., staying fit becomes a critical part of a routine for most aviators. Many of us aviators take advantage of the opportunity of being in a different city each day as a chance to exercise outdoors and explore the local attractions. On today's flight, I will explain how I got into running on layovers and how that led to training for and running marathons. Each week, we will explore aviation-related topics and news stories that affect the current aviation career market. I will explain what we professional aviators do, how we do it, and why we do it that way. 
I often get approached in airport terminals by passengers that ask questions about the airline operation, the aircraft I fly, and the weather, particularly how it affects their flight and arrival time. In another segment I call There We Were, I will share tales from aviation past. I've always enjoyed in having the opportunity to tell a good story. I have family and friends that are not in the aviation profession, and they often ask me to recount some of my experiences out there on the flight line. I also have found that telling stories in the first person makes them all that much better. With that said, as the disclaimer states at the beginning of each episode, all stories, events, and tales shared within this podcast may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. We will also discuss what is going on behind the cockpit door. Have you ever wondered what goes on up there? Why have we not taken off yet? Did we just go missed? We will explore what goes on in the flight deck on a typical flight sequence. Since the Squawk Ident podcast is focused on the journey of today's aviator, later on in the season, I will have the honor in speaking with some inspiring aviators that have agreed to share their journeys with us. From Top Gun pilots to airport bums, major bird strike survivors, and members of the 9G Club, we will sit down with some legendary pilots and find out how their journeys in aviation led them to obtaining very fruitful careers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the flight. Flight one of the Squawk I Did podcast is officially underway. Captain, how soon can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard this journey of aviation. The Squawk I Did podcast is something that a friend of mine recently told me, hey, you know, you always have these cool stories about flying. People are interested in that. Why don't you start a podcast? And I thought, no, there's just, just no way. Um, and I'll explain how I got into starting this podcast a little bit later on this episode. Uh, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to introduce to you me, Aviator Tony. Um, who is Aviator Tony? Well, I am uh, just a typical suburban kid, um, came from uh, a family of, of immigrants to this country from Italy through Canada and into where we ended up settling in 1979, which was in California, Northern California. And grew up just, you know, typical kid going to school and, and riding my BMX bike until the streetlights came on and, and, you know, typical Generation X kid, right? Um, Flying was always something that interested me. You know, as, as a small child growing up, most of the kids, what were we were playing with, we were playing with G.I. Joes and, uh, you know, playing Army and, and Matchbox cars, Hot Wheel cars and airplanes, trains and things like that. Well, aviation always was just something that was magical to me. And my parents were, were very good. They, they bought me a lot of models that, I was putting together uh, in an effort to exercise more patience in me. Um, I had a lot of energy, and it got me to sit at a desk and and actually, you know, meticulously try to put together these models. In you know, eight, nine, ten years old, um, and they allowed me to hang these models from fishing line in my room, and it got to the point where I was running out of uh, ceiling space to hang these things. Uh, most of my friends, you know, you'd go to their room and they had uh, posters on the wall. They had posters of, you know, uh, 
swimsuit models or they had posters of you know rock bands or you know Depeche Mode, The Cure, whatever you know Metallica, ACDC, things like that. You know, I had friends. They had posters of Run DMC and Easy E, and and I had posters of you know SR seventy one. F-14, F-15 aircraft, military aircraft on the walls. I was just enamored with aviation. And, you know, growing up, your parents ask, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I always said the same thing. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. I want to fly airplanes. And my parents, you know, having a a traditional (laughs) Italian background, my mom, I could still hear her in my head. My mom, no, 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 no. That's too dangerous. You cannot be a pilot. You're not that smart, you know. <laughs> I love my mother. Don't get me wrong, but she just thought it was dangerous. She didn't want her only son, her old, her eldest child, to get into an airplane, especially a military airplane. Um, and she just thought it was dangerous and didn't think I could do it. And she, so she constantly, you know, every time I talked about doing that for a career, uh, she constantly was like, oh, no, you know, we're not rich. Only rich people can afford to fly. And, and you need to know a, a congressman uh, or a doctor so that they can, you know, endorse you. Uh, otherwise, there's no way. And, and so <laughs> they, were, they were convincing me that I had to find a career path that kept my feet planted firmly on the ground. You know, growing up, I heard a lot of the same sentiment from guidance counselors, teachers, um, you know, other mentors, but it didn't stop me, not one bit, um, until I had to be out on my own <laughs> to pay for rent and college and whatnot. And so I, I got a job at a big box retailer. Um, I think I was about 19 years old when I started uh, over at one of those big ones. and. Uh, I quickly moved up the ranks and made some pretty good money and was able to pay for rent and, you know, college and books and gas for my car and (laughs) things like that. And aviation was just so far on the back burner. It wasn't even a thing anymore. You know, here I was, I had all the coffee table books and the posters and the models still, but it was just more of a pipe dream for me. And it wasn't until later on in life where I think I was about 24 uh, when I met a girl, and we uh, we ended up uh, moving to Albuquerque for a, a career opportunity, and uh, ended up you know buying a house and starting a family together. And she one day said, "You know why did you never pursue this career field that you clearly are passionate about? I mean, everything's about airplanes with you. Why don't you ever aspire to?" to pursue that. And I said, well, you know, and here came the sound bites. No, I'm not that smart. You know, <laughs> and she's like, no, that's, that's your parents and the people that love you that want to keep you safe because they don't understand. She goes, but I used to go out and get the hundred dollar hamburger with friends from high school that their parents own an airplane and, you know, down in Southern California. And, and this was a normal thing. This is, it's not a big deal. You could totally do it. And now that you you know, you have a decent job and, you know, we're doing okay. Why don't you pursue it? And I go, well, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. So one Christmas in 2001, uh, she bought me a discovery flight, $99. Go up for, you know, a couple of touch and goes in the pattern for a discovery flight. So there we were, uh, a friend of mine from LA came to visit and stay with us uh, in Albuquerque. And the three of us went to this FBO. 
at Double Eagle Airport in the Albuquerque area and walk into this gorgeous FBO. And I said, hey, I'm here for a discovery flight, you know, and, and the secretary says, okay, your, your flight instructor's up with another student. Uh, just hang out in the lobby and I'll let them know you're here. And a little while later, this, you know, tall, good looking dude comes up, you know, another, uh, I assumed was an Italian dude. Cause I mean, he looked like he could be my cousin. <laughs> and this guy comes up and says, ciao, my name is Luca. I'm your flight instructor. We're going to go do a... Some touch and go in the pattern. And I was like, oh, say Italiano. Allora, possiamo parlare in Italiano. And he's like, his eyes lit up. And he goes, hey, ciao. You know, and next thing you know, we get two Italians in the lobby of this FBO in <laughs> Albuquerque, New Mexico, waving their hands around, talking about airplanes and, and our backgrounds. And, and we went up and my uh my girlfriend at the time my wife uh she stayed in the in the uh, fbo and hung out by the by the giant fireplace and and had some hot chocolate and and waited for us while i went up and my my buddy who brandon who came to stay with us he sat in the back seat i got to sit at the controls of a cessna 172 sp and we went around the mesa and the pattern and it was just my eyes i don't think i blinked the whole hour. I just, it was so amazing. And Luca was so informative and he made it seem so easy. And I just thought, wow, this is really cool. And I'll never forget what he told me. He was like, you know, you, if you want, let's take some lessons. Not a big deal. Just you pay as you go. And if it's something that you really want to pursue, we can put you on track with this, you know, King School Cessna program. And it's affordable and you can get your private pilot license and we'll go from there. And then he said, you know, can you imagine if you change careers and become an airline pilot, you could be flying uh, for a big company, uh, like a big, like American or United or something. And you go fly and go from New York to Milan, Italy, and then stay there for 30 hours on a layover and go see your cousins and hang out and they get paid to do it. <laughs> and well... And I thought, wow, that's <laughs> amazing. I, I, I could, couldn't imagine this. And here I was talking to someone who, you know, for all intents and purposes, was a flight instructor building time so he too could pursue this career. But he was so relatable, at least to me, that he made it seem possible. So that was it. I signed up. I was flying on the weekends and on days off, probably about five, six times a month, not a lot. Um, not by any stretch of the means on a fast track program, but after about 42 or 43 hours, I think it was in my logbook when I took my private pilot check ride, I got signed off and I passed. And my instructor, Luca said, you know, most people take 60 to 80 hours, at least back then. And you got it done really quick. You, you have a knack for this, you know, maybe this is something you want to pursue further. And I said, absolutely, this is, this is awesome. And I, I can totally picture myself being an airline pilot someday. So we started on our instrument and I started going with a little bit more frequency, but it was expensive. Um, you know, I, I don't remember quite what I was paying for the aircraft and the instructor an hour. I don't think it was that much, uh, not like it is today, but I definitely was paying as I went, didn't take out any loans or anything. And then an event happened in history that changed aviation forever. That's September 11th, 2001. And it, it kind of put everything 
just on hold. So after about, I think it was about two or three weeks of just being grounded, not being able to fly. Uh, and I was sitting there having a conversation uh, with my, with my fiance at the time. And she said, Hey, uh, you know, if you stop doing this flying thing, if you decide that, you know, this career path that you've been really passionate about here the last few months, if you, if you quit, then what's going to happen is the terrorists from another country with their ideology, they win. They have ultimately changed your trajectory in life and affected you economically, emotionally, and they win. Don't let that happen. If you wanted to pursue a career, now's the time to do it. Because by the time you get out of your training, the airlines will probably start hiring again. You know, the industry wall, we're going to bounce back. At least that's what we thought. So I called up my instructor and I said, yeah, let's, let's keep working on the instrument and go from there. Uh, and eventually what happened was I started to realize that because I wasn't like fresh out of high school or fresh out of college and starting a career in my early 20s, um, I thought that maybe I was a little bit behind the curb. So we ended up looking at flight schools. And I ended up settling on a Pan Am Flight Academy in Phoenix, Arizona. So in 2004, I attended the Pan Am International Flight Academy at Deer Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, it was one of those things where it was seven days a week until you're done, about 10 months worth of instruction. And so we sold the house and the picket fence and the cars and ended up moving to Deer Valley and in northern phoenix area and i went to flight school the flight school was was good it was a reputable school it was one of these fast track airline schools they sold me on a on a bag of goods that they they a little bit oversold me and they couldn't deliver on everything um but i really don't have anything negative to say because really i think it doesn't matter what flight school you attend it's what you put into it that counts it's the dedication and the, the work that you put in that really counts. And I, I can't say enough good things about the people I met there. Um, some of the most amazing pilots uh, starting their journeys. And the instructors I had were mostly just top-notch. And I learned so much. But it was a bubble. And you, you might hear this uh, as you start your aviation career. That if you go to a flight school farm or a flight, you know, student farm, uh, you're going to be in this little bubble, you know, all the same airplane, everyone's following the same, uh, maybe 141 instruction syllabus, and you're not going to get the variety that you might get at, say, a Part 61 flight school, uh, which is very true. And so after I graduated, within the 10 months, and about $80,000 in debt for the first time in my life, I thought, okay, now what? Uh, if, if I actually believe the bag of goods that they sold me on, then that means that I'm going to flight instruct for like six months and then get picked up at some regional carrier, probably like SkyWest or ExpressJet or one of these carriers that were currently at the time hiring. Then, you know, maybe within a couple of years, I can upgrade to captain and I'm going to be making pretty close to what I was making before I changed careers. I thought, that's not bad. 
Well, after I graduated from the Pan Am International Flight Academy, something major happened over in Florida. For the second year in a row, a hurricane had created so much damage to their sister flight school over in, uh, I think it was Fort Pierce, Florida, um, that they decided to close that flight school because the insurance costs were just way too high. And they brought all the aircraft and all the instructors over to the Deer Valley school or campus, which meant even though I had, I had just graduated, they weren't going to have a flight instructor position for me as promised as part of the training package. So I made a few phone calls and I was instructed to call a flight school in Chandler, Arizona and talk to a young flight instructor by the name of Rob, Rob D we'll call him. Um, and he gave me the truth about what to expect at a small flight school. And so I, I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and put in my application and interview at this place. I got a really nice letter of recommendation from my, my designated examiner or my DE. Um, I walked in with that, ready for an interview. And the owners of the flight school uh, liked my background. Uh, they liked that I was a member of management at a big box retailer. And they liked you know, the program that I was in at this flight school that was very reputable in the in the Phoenix Metroplex. And I was able to achieve a job there and immediately made an assistant chief flight instructor. The chief flight instructor uh, was a, a charter pilot, a jet, a jet stream pilot um, who had just gotten the job himself. And the school was expanding dramatically because uh, during 9-11, the school almost shut its doors. As a matter of fact, the, the previous owner sold the school to then the then owners, uh, that the ones that hired me. And so together we hired on, I think, three or four more flight instructors right away. And then later on, we hired another five. And the school just grew so exponentially. And it was an opportunity and an experience that I could not have wished more for. I mean, it just was such a great opportunity to work at that flight school. Um, I learned so much. We got all our airplanes that were on leaseback, we got them on MELs so that if a student was doing a pre-flight and they discovered, say, for example, a landing light was burned out, uh, they could put it in what is an MEL or minimum equipment list log for a Cessna 172. Um, I worked with our, our POI or principal operating inspector for the FAA. They're the ones that manage the schools and make sure that the school is following all the FARs or Federal Aviation Regulations. Uh, I had a relationship with him. Uh, some of our, our DEs or designated examiners were Czech airmen at America West, an airline, a big airline in Phoenix at the time. So I got to hear all about the airline and that operation and the knowledge that I was able to acquire from that work experience was phenomenal and really did pave the way for my journey in aviation. My, my story goes on, and we're going to hear more about my, my journey, my story, as each episode unfolds. Now, I can tell you this, after about 10 months at the flight school, and I started seeing all of these flight instructors that I, we were hiring to keep up with the demand with the students that we were attaining, they were there very short periods of time, four or five months, and then they would get hired by 
a regional airline. And at the time, we you know we had gotten married, and I had a, a a newborn at home, and I was kind of a part time stay at home dad and a part time instructor. Um, it was it was a really good time in my life. But I thought, you know, what am I doing? I, I need to get a job. I need to continue my journey. I can't I can't get comfortable here, which is what exactly what I was. And as the flight school expanded and grew, I finally started putting out my applications. I applied at uh, a regional we'll call Sandpiper on the show and as an alias to one of the wholly owns for Legacy Airlines. Legacy Airlines is, again, an alias for one of the world's largest mainline or legacy carriers uh, who I currently am employed with. And uh, so I put my application out on a Friday evening through uh, airline apps. And Saturday late morning, I got a phone call from their HR department saying, hey, we received your application. We would like to know if you'd like to interview on Monday. We'll fly you out uh, for free. We'll fly you out to Dallas on Sunday. We'll put you up in a hotel. You'll interview Monday morning. Uh, If we invite you to stay another day, you'll stay Tuesday and we'll put you up again in a hotel. And on Tuesday, you would do like a medical examination and a simulator evaluation and if we like what we see then you know we'll work on there if not you know we'll send you back home and and thank you for coming in and i was like yeah for sure this is amazing this is yeah it's happening so fast so i packed a bag grabbed whatever suit i can find um and i was ready to be um in a part of this interview for Sandpiper Regional. And everything went really well. I had a, uh, a 50 question ATP written at the time. Uh, at, back then in, in 2006, you didn't have to be an ATP certified pilot to get a job in an, at an airline. You just needed a commercial multi-engine uh, rating with a minimum hours. Now they were traditionally looking for about 1500 hours a total time with as, as much multi-engine time as possible. Uh, and they had a, a couple of requirements also on how much PIC time you had, how much night flying you had. Um, so, and I, I actually qualified with all those hours. I had been flying so much at the flight school that that I had the minimums. What I didn't know is that because I went to a, a Pan Am Flight Academy, that I could have potentially start putting out my applications as low as 500 hours at the time. Um, one of those details that I missed or, or wasn't explained to me. So I ended up getting the 1500 hours plus and interviewing and it went well. They invited me back the second day. And on the end of the second day, they said, okay, when can you start? <laughs> and I thought, well, let me give my employer, you know, 30 days notice. He's got to replace me. It's not like I'm just, you know, got one or two students. I have a full plate. So after that, uh, we decided to take the, the big plunge and get into this regional airline career, get it started. And that's how I ended up starting my career. It was uh, about two years from really when I decided to change careers to the point where I got a job at a regional, which at the time was a huge deal. And it wasn't very popular to to not be an instructor for years and years and build time or go fly for like a cargo outfit, you know, flying 
turboprops around for years until you get the experience. I actually was very fortunate to get on and get this journey started very quickly. I'm going to talk more about how I ended up at Legacy, how we started this podcast, and a typical airline trip sequence right after the break. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, we've been talking about the Squawk I Didn't podcast, the very first episode, and how I, Aviator Tony, got into aviation as a second career, starting just a little bit later. But I want to emphasize that it's never too late to start a career in aviation. So to continue on with the story uh, on my journey, my journey continued on. I had just so many stories of of mistakes that I've made that I've learned from so many stories about how an experience shaped who I am as an aviator how I operate on the flight deck and we're going to share those as this podcast goes on on future episodes but I also want to move along and tell you a little bit about how I ended up at Legacy Airlines so after 12 years at what we call Sandpiper, the alias to one of the holy owns here, um, I went from being based in Dallas to Chicago to New York to LA, then back to Chicago. Um, I helped manage and run a crash pad in Chicago. We'll talk about those on a future show. Um, the, all these experiences from de-icing in Marquette, Michigan, to flying into the Caribbean over the Atlantic for the first time. We're going to talk about those experiences. We're going to explain a little bit about how each of those experiences really led me to being the aviator I am today, but that I am very proud of and I protect at, in every way I can my career, my certificate, my medical. And we're going to discuss those. But let's talk about how I got into Legacy Airlines. Now, the airline I started out at, the regional carrier, I, I was on the Embraer 145 from day one. And that really was a very good experience for me. It was a good choice because it gave me the most flexibility because it was the aircraft that Sandpiper had the most abundance of. It gave me the best opportunity for schedules, for bases, for flying opportunities. And it was really, for me, a good choice. Now, everyone makes their choice and what airplane they select when they get first hired. You know, they, they usually bring you into a room on day one or, or what they call indoctrination or indoc. And on indoc, they put you in order, usually by age. So the youngest person picks last and the oldest person picks first. Some airlines do it by like score on a, on a particular evaluation or test. They go, okay, whoever scored the highest gets to pick first uh, of their choice of aircraft and base. Um, and every class date is going to be different. So whereas maybe the class before me had 17 open spots for a jet in, say, LaGuardia, and then only one open spot for a jet in Dallas, then the next class might have 10 open spots in Dallas on a jet, 
but then the rest were turboprops like in LA. So it, it really was a game of chance. I was very fortunate because I was just a little bit older than the average in the class. I was in the top 20% of those that got to pick their base and their aircraft. And I was able to pick a base and aircraft that led me to the Embraer 145. And I, I gotta say, it's just, it's a great airplane. I really did have fun in it. It's like a little sports car and it, it, it flies glass cockpit flies really well and it keeps up with, you know, even the big boys. So uh, really good experience. Now I was able to have a 12 and a half year career there at the Sandpiper. I lived through bankruptcies, mergers, furloughs, um, and we'll talk about those experiences here on future shows. But after a set time, I was able to participate in what they call a flow-through agreement to a mainline carrier because we were wholly owned regional, owned by a the major corporation that owned both Legacy Airlines and Sandpiper. After my seniority allowed me to then bid out onto the next career path, I was able to do a flow-through to Legacy Airlines in 2018. And there I was at the top of the pyramid on my first choice of base, which is Los Angeles, my first choice of aircraft, which is the Airbus A320 family. And I got through probation. I got through IOE. I got through all of it. And I thought, now what? <laughs> you know, I'm at the top of the pyramid and I've got 20 years left in my career, at least for now. And <laughs> what am I going to, you know, am I going to be bored? What, what's happening here? So I was speaking with a friend, uh, Dom, and, and you're going you're gonna to hear from Dom here in a future show, but Dom Z uh, said to me, hey man, uh, we were dropping our kids off at school one day and he goes, you know, I got to get back. I got to get home. I'm like, oh, because he works graveyard shift and, and I thought you have to get to sleep. You're probably tired. You've been driving all night. He's like, well, no, I got to get home. I got to record a podcast. And I'm like, really? You, you you have a podcast like Joe Rogan podcast? What what? Tell me about this. When did you start this? He goes, oh yeah, I started it about like six months ago. I just read stuff on the internet and people listen, man. It's it's cool. <laughs> I was like, well, really? He goes, you should start one. You should start one about aviation. You always have the best stories, man. I, I can hear those stories all the time. And I thought, wow, uh, I don't know. Like companies nowadays with social media, they're, they look down upon anyone that post anything. And if, you know, God forbid I say something wrong, you know, I don't want to get, lose my career over it. And he goes, well, you don't have to tell anybody who you fly for. You have an alias to everything. And I was like, that's okay. That's a good idea. So I started looking into podcasts. I started listening to other podcasts out there, uh, especially aviation podcasts. And I thought, well, what do I want to do? So we sat down um, and I sat down uh, with my wife and I said, do you think this is a good idea? And she said, you remember when I bought you that discovery flight and you were hesitant because you thought you weren't good enough or it was too expensive or any, any of the other excuses that you have been sold your entire life? I said, yeah. She goes, and how did that turn out? I'm like, well, crap, man. I'm, I'm proud of who I am and the career I have. And I think I'm a pretty damn good pilot too. You know? And she goes, well, if you want to start a podcast, I will support you in the same manner that I supported you with aviation. And that really struck a chord with me. And I thought, wow, okay. So I did my research, about three months of knowing what I want to do, what I don't want to do, and here I am. 
Um, <laughs> I really hope that uh, all of you listeners out there uh, will enjoy the stories I have to tell and the journeys out there in the future interviews, uh, because this podcast is really not just a hobby for me, but it's a way for me to express my passion in aviation and explain a lot of what we do up there. And that's how I got started. That's what led me into this podcasting world. So forgive me, the first few episodes will probably be a little rough as I, as I get my foothold here in, in podcasting, but, uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing my story and the stories of some really wonderful aviators with all of you. So let's talk about what a typical flight for me is at this stage in the game. Okay, so here I am at a legacy airline. Uh, I am a line holder out of Los Angeles, based in Los Angeles. I live in the area and I fly the Airbus A319, 320, and 321, and all the many variants that we have at Legacy Airlines. A typical flight sequence, uh, as a line holder, I know what I'm supposed to fly for the whole month. The way that works is we bid for our schedules. Usually about mid-month, the month prior, we get to go online and take a look at what the airline has to offer in terms of flight schedules. Those flight schedules are then uploaded into a program called Preferential Bidding System, or PBS. Now, the PBS system, what it does is it puts up a bunch of sequences. So a two-day trip, four-day trip, one-day trip, five-day trip, it's all in there. And you, as a as a pilot, can go in there and put in what your preferences are. Now, the, we could have an entire series of podcasts just explaining how this works. And hopefully over the next few months, we can get to explain how PBS works. But I'll bid for my month what I prefer to fly. And as a pilot that is senior enough to hold a line, I usually am awarded something like that. Now, there's also what's called reserve. And so if a, a junior pilot or a pilot that's not very high up on seniority, they're, they're basically on call. So they'll, you can bid different types of reserve and we'll get into those aspects later as well. But I am able to hold the line and I'm not very good right now of a line. They're usually really early starts or red eye flights or things like that because I'm not very senior at this stage in the game. But I'm able to know what I'm flying for the month. So I get make sure I get myself to the airport. I'm very fortunate enough to live in base. Some pilots live out of base. So they have to actually get to their local airport and then hop on a flight, fly into their base, and get there with enough time to settle in and then sign in for their trip. So a typical trip, you'll go into your crew room or operations, get to a computer, and sign in so that the company knows that you are in place and where you need to be. Now, you signing in nowadays is getting pretty advanced with uh, apps that we have on their phone. And you can easily just sign in because the phone knows exactly your GPS location. And as long as it detects that you are at the airport you're supposed to be at, in the terminal you're supposed to be in, then you can sign in right from your phone or your tablet. Um, so you typical sign in, let's just say we go into the operations or the crew room and I get to a computer and I sign in for my trip and it'll tell me what gate, what my flight 
trip is for that week. Um, some pilots still print out their their schedule. Um, I just have everything on my my phone in the, the company provided app, and so it's all there. Sometimes I take a screenshot of it, which I highly recommend. Uh, if you could do a screenshot of your schedule before it starts, because as it changes throughout your week, uh, you might need proof that you were originally f- flying something else that might have been worth more money or more th- more scheduled time, and then you might get reassigned or you know weather cancellations, mechanical cancellations, reassignments, and at the end of it, you want to make sure that you are collecting you know the the pay that you were guaranteed through your through your contract. So I I always say it's a good idea to take a screenshot at the beginning of the trip and then at the end of the trip take another one and compare the two. And after a few weeks, I just delete them if there's no issue. Um, so you go into the crew room and usually you see familiar faces down there. You know, you check your mailbox, you pull out your tablet or your or EFB, which is electronic flight bag. Um, I actually am from a generation that we actually had these books, these binders of, of charts. Uh, we use Jeppesen as the company that had our charts. And so at the beginning of your trip, you would have to go into the crew room, look in your mailbox. And if there was an update, which I think every every other Friday was an update, uh, you pulled out a little manila envelope and you had a bunch of charts in there. And you had to sit down at a desk and pull out your JEP charts and update your manuals. Uh, there are company manuals too that got updated. So you had to update those. And you were required to carry around this kit bag, this usually leather or ballistic nylon bag, looked like kind of a doctor's bag. And in there was 20 to 40 pounds worth of charts, depending on if you were an international pilot or not. And <laughs> these these charts had to be updated. And then you would pull out only the charts that were going to be needed for your particular trip that week. And you'd put them in a separate little binder so that in on the flight deck you could just pull out the the small binder with your trip what they call it a trip book and then all the other binders that had every other airport in the country or in the world depending on you know what you're flying um those stayed in the bottom of your kit bag and that's why those things were so heavy <laughs> um a lot of pilots had hurt backs trying to flip those kit bags over their lap and into the the kit bag holder on the flight deck, by the way. Um, and, and that's the typical uh, signing in for a trip. You know, grab a cup of coffee down there. You might see a familiar face, might have a conversation. Oh, where are you off to this week? Oh, I'm going here and here. Oh, okay. How's the weather? You know, so that's another thing. You can check the weather for your flight. So whether you're a private pilot, working on your ratings, checking the weather for your, for your lesson to make sure that everything is, you know, good, it's safe, um, the practice area, you know, are there any NOTAMs or notices to error, error missions as they're going to call them here soon? Uh, notices to airmen. Um, is there anything that I need to know about? Uh, so you do your pre-flight, right? And then you get to the airplane. Usually you get to the gate and the gate agent will grant you access down the jet bridge once the airplane plane is there and they've deplaned it, they've catered it, they've cleaned it. Now you get to go down there as a working crew member and you get your nest set up in the flight deck or in the cockpit. You know, you get your bag in there, you get everything set up and you collect the information you need. You to go do a pre-flight walk around, very important before every flight. And then 
uh, that's it. You get back in the airplane, everything looks okay. You check the paperwork, you check the flight plan, <laughs> you upload all the, the GPS, the flight management system or the FMS, you get everything updated. You, you introduce yourself to the other pilot, in my case, the captain. Um, hi, how are you? You know, very, very, very important to be personable, to be kind, to be, you know, communicative when you first meet the pilot you're going to fly with probably for four days. So, you know, we get there about 45 minutes to an hour prior to the flight. You introduce yourself and you might ask the other pilot a couple of questions, you know, where are you commuting in? Where are you coming in from? Do you live close? You know, um, how long have you been flying? You know, or what were you flying before this? Things like that. Um, and to kind of break the ice. And that's really important, especially uh, in this career. So that's how we get started. And once we are underway, we're all boarded up. That's it. We're following standard operating procedures and we fly together. Everybody knows their role, pilot flying, pilot monitoring, uh, captain, first officer, flight attendants, number one flight attendant versus the number four or five flight attendant, their roles. Everyone knows their roles. So it's, it's really like a well-oiled machine. And then you have to know your roles when something abnormal happens. And it's the typical, uh, you know, saying is anything that can go wrong will go wrong on the go home leg or the last leg of the sequence. So <laughs> we'll talk about that here as well as this podcast goes on. Now let's dive into a segment I call on the run. So as I mentioned in the opener, that fitness is important for aviators, especially in the airline pilot world, because your job is relatively sedentary. You're sitting behind the controls of an aircraft. You're really not getting much exercise. Granted, yes, you're walking around airports and to the curb and whatnot, but generally speaking, it's a very sedentary job. And when you're struggling to find decent food and you're maybe the only thing that you have available to you is you know fast food at the airport, which is exorbitantly priced because you're a captive audience, you know, your eating habits could also diminish significantly with this career. So let's talk about how I got into running as a way to stay fit on a layover. Some of my friends have called me a little bit of a fanatic when it comes to the running, but I got to be honest with you, it, it did change my life. Uh, getting into this exercise that can be done for little to no cost whatsoever. And considering the career field that I'm in, this is really a great way to stay in shape. And I'd like to share with you how I got into it. So this is On The Run. found myself uh, you know tacking on some pounds you know college adds a bit and you know you get into a relationship that adds a bit uh, you end up getting engaged and then finally married to a culinary school graduate and there's a bit and then you get this job as a flight instructor which is relatively sedentary so they tax on a couple of pounds and by the time I got on with a regional I found myself uh, feeling just out of shape. And so 
I started looking around and I noticed that a lot of the people that I was flying with uh, were some relatively big guys. Uh, we're talking captains that have been flying uh, for quite some time. And it got to the point where when it was time to do a control check, uh, you'd have to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm going to do a control check now. And they would have to scoot their seat back and get their gut out of the way so you don't uh, squish their their gut. And I thought to myself many times, you know, is this my future? Is this the way I'm going to look from eating airport food and hotel food and, you know, getting out there and being in a relatively sedentary position? And I knew it was getting bad when I was getting winded just coming up the Jetbridge stairs after a walk around. So I found myself probably about six or seven months after I got the job at the regional that I was flying for, uh, to have the opportunity to fly with a captain who was in absolutely great shape. Uh, He was in his 50s and clearly an athlete. And after a leg or two, I got up enough nerve to ask him, hey, uh, I hope you don't mind me asking, but what do you do? I mean, clearly, you don't look like most of the captains that I've flown with in the past, you're clearly an athlete, uh, if you don't mind me asking. And he kind of chuckled and he said, yeah, uh, no, that's great. Absolutely. He goes, I run uh, marathons and triathlons and uh, even an Ironman. And I was just amazed. I said, wow, this is, this is pretty impressive. I said, your marathon, how, how much is a marathon? And he explained to me that it was you know, 26.2 miles. And I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. 26.2 miles. You run 26.2 miles. How how long does that take you? How many days does that take? And he laughed again and he said, well, you know, that doesn't take very long at all. It takes me about three hours. I said, three hours? I can't even drive 26 miles in three hours. Are you kidding me? You know, and he chuckled. And, and so we got to talking about uh, running and how he got into running. And he explained to me that, you know, he was not unlike me. Uh, in his uh, 20s and early 30s, and that he was kind of out of shape. And a lot of his friends that were runners were trying to get him to run an event. And he kept, you know, writing it off. Ah, are you kidding? You know, he used to chuckle. Uh, I only run from the cops, man. This is crazy. So uh, he finally decided, you know, my buddy's going to run this uh, turkey trot 5K. I'm going to go ahead and, and run it with him and see how it goes. And he said he absolutely fell in love with it. And he said to me, look, you know, you look like you're in pretty good shape. Uh, You probably were an athlete, right? And I said, yeah, in high school when I was young, sure. And he says, well, I tell you what. He goes, you can go down this road that you've seen countless people do, where you fly the airplane, you get to the hotel, and you meet up with your crew and go out and get... uh, fried food and chicken wings and a couple beers here and there. And next thing you know, you're going to just gain the circumference around your waist. And that's fine if that's the life you want to live. He goes, but I want to be around for a long time. And I needed a hobby to keep me occupied, especially on an overnight. He says, so I just signed up for this 5K with my friend. And he told me uh, that it's a great opportunity. He said, listen, when you cross that finish line, after you sign up for an event, you know, you're going to pay $40, 50 $60 for this event. So that's going to force you 
to get out there and run and train because you just spent money on something. So, you know, you go, you train, you read up a little bit about it. And next thing you know, it's race day. And so you're there. You're going to find family and friends coming out to help you out, to support you. And you're going to just have this great feeling. And when you cross that finish line, at that point on your first event, you're going to know. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. If you hate it, you'll probably never run again and you'll, you'll just think it's crazy. Um, but if you love it, uh, the endorphin rush that you're going to get, uh, the, the adrenaline that's going to be pumping, he says, it'll change your life, you know, and think about it. So you, you fly, you're sitting down all day long, which is not good, you know, especially we're just not meant to sit for that long. And you get to the hotel and what's the first thing you're going to do? You could turn on the TV and watch uh, movies on HBO that you've probably seen a dozen times before, or you can not turn the TV on. You strap on some running shoes, put some tunes in in your iPod or what have you, and go for a run. He said, if you get tired, you stop and you walk. And if you are feeling good, you keep going. If you get lost, you got your phone, you could you can call the hotel. They can pick you up if you get hurt. He said, it is a great way to stay in shape. And you're going to see that once you start running some distance with some regularity that you're going to need a little bit less coffee, you're going to need uh, a little bit uh, less sleep, you're going to feel better throughout the day, more energy, and your mind is just going to be a little sharper. And it's because you're getting this regular exercise. It's kind of like a, a Zen movement. And I really was so interested in it and I was asking him so many questions. He finally said, listen, we're doing a Cincinnati overnight tonight. He said, I love Cincinnati overnight because you can run along the river. They've got a great running trail. Why don't you come with me? And I said, well, I, you know, I haven't run for, for much in years. I'm out of shape. I, I don't want to hold you back. And he said, no, not at all. He said, I love running with new people, new runners. Uh, he said, that's fine. He goes, we'll run together. I'll stay with you at your pace for a mile. And then after that, I'll just keep going. If you want to turn around and walk back to the hotel, that's great. He said, uh, just go as far as you can that you feel comfortable with without getting hurt. And when you get tired, turn around, walk back to the hotel. He said, I'll text you when I get back. We'll go get dinner. So there I was. I threw on some, some old uh, shoes and shorts that I had with me. And we went for this run together. And he's sitting there the whole time while we're running and talking about uh, this and that. And I'm just sitting here trying to keep my breathing under control and, and trying to keep up and, and working through it all. And after about a mile, like he said, he, he went, took off, and I turned around, started walking and jogging back to the hotel. By the time I got back to the hotel, here he was right behind me. And he said, oh, you did great. You did great. I said, oh, no, you know. He says, no, really, you, you absolutely did great. You probably ran, what, about two miles, you think? And he goes, well, yeah, I, I just walked back. I'm like, well, how many miles did, did you run? And he said, I ran seven. Seven? I mean, you were gone the same amount of time as I was, and you ran seven miles? He goes, yeah, yeah, once you get out, you know, get your pace going, you'll be great. So it really affected me. You know, here's this guy a good, you know, 15 years older than I am, and he's in such great shape. 
and running healthy. And then afterwards, we went out, grabbed some dinner, and it just felt good. Uh, so I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, I, I've got a little bit of a competitive side. So I right away went home and ordered a couple books on Amazon about running and how to train for uh, a half marathon. I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do something relatively big. So uh, within a few weeks, I signed up for a half marathon in my local neighborhood, and I ended up running uh, a pretty good race here in uh, the area. And I ended up doing the 13.1 miles of the half marathon after training for about four to five months uh, on overnights and at home. And I did rel relatively well. And, but the feeling I got crossing that finish line, watching my daughter, who was relatively young at the time, sit there and cheering for her dad and have strangers pat me on the back saying, good job, good job, good pace. Um, and then having a medal put around your neck. You know, every participant gets a medal when you run a race. But just having that medal, I actually broke down and cried about how proud I was of not only myself, of the accomplishment that I did, uh, but with all the adrenaline, all the endorphins, and, and all the, the, the pride I had in my family being there supporting me, being proud of me. It was, it was overwhelming. And it got me hooked. No different than how my first flight in that Cessna 172 got me hooked on flying. So I made it a pact to run at least one event a year and do my best to keep up my running throughout my overnights. Um, so in this career field now, I've been flying for a uh, a multitude of airlines here. Uh, I've always made it a point to do my best to see the cities I'm in, uh, to find the small uh, mom and pop restaurants uh, that pop up uh, near the hotel here, and uh, and I also run. And it is an absolute uh, privilege to be able to say that I get to run in uh, you know in Kona, or I get to run you know in New York or wherever I may be in Boston. So a uh, great, great way to keep up your, your physical activity. Uh, and it just started with a chance encounter with a person who I later uh, spoke quite a bit about running with, and uh, it absolutely changed my life. So get out there, run if you can. If you can't, there are other things you can do. Uh, the gym, uh, most hotels have at minimum uh, an exercise bike or an elliptical or a treadmill. Um, but I, I try to do my best to get up there. I, I want to keep my medical as long as I possibly can. So this is a great way. I encourage you to get out there and strap on some shoes and go for a run. So next up, I'd like to talk about what's in the news in reference to aviation. And uh, most of us have seen what's going on with this YouTube video in Chicago last week. So an employee uh, had stopped an out-of-control catering cart at Chicago O'Hare. And the footage is absolutely amazing. A, a passenger who was in the terminal in the, looks like the G-Con course in Chicago O'Hare, uh, took cell phone footage of this uh, basically, it's a golf cart that's been heavily modified, 
with uh, catering provisions. And if you've ever gone through the G-Con course in Chicago and you look outside, you see all these little golf carts running around with just stacks and stacks of provisions and sodas and whatnot. And they're basically catering the, the aircraft. And these smaller airplanes, uh, instead of a truck, they use uh, these modified golf carts, and they're very heavy. Uh, they're not only heavy because of the provisions they uh, obtain, but they're also heavy because of all the the modifications to them. There's a, a floor, basically, on the roof of this golf cart. So what had happened, according to uh, the reference I'm looking at, is the ABC7 News of Los Angeles. According to ABC7 News on an article that was released on October 1st, uh, the a case of water had slipped and landed on the, the gas pedal, basically, of this golf cart. And it was in reverse. It popped the chocks and threw the driver, and it was doing reverse donuts in the, on the ramp area right next to an Embraer 145. And as it was turning, you could see these employees gathering to try to figure out how they're going to stop this this very dangerous situation. And as it's getting closer and doing more and more spins to the aircraft, you can see that this next rotation from the video, it, it's definitely going to hit this airplane. And the quick thinking of one of the rampers, a Jorge Manalang, uh, jumped on the actual pushback tub that was getting ready to be used to push back that fully loaded aircraft. And his quick thinking, he moved the tug, knocked over this you know, quickly rotating and spinning golf cart and prevented just what could potentially have been millions of dollars in damage to the aircraft and could have potentially injured some of the rampers that were in the area trying to figure out how to stop this. And just a wonderful, wonderful job that the quick action uh, of, of this ramper did. Even got the attention, according to the ABC7 News article that I'm reading, from President Trump, who tweeted, great job just in time. So, well, we know Trump that likes to watch a lot of television and videos and whatnot, so I'm sure he saw it and was just as impressed as the rest of us. So, good job. Hats off to you, Jorge. And excellent, excellent work. So, a lot of times, as I mentioned earlier, passengers will pull me aside in the airport and ask me about what's going on on the other side of the cockpit door uh, for one reason or another. Uh, there's a lot of curiosity out there. And because there is not that much information on the complexity of our job for the typical passenger. So I wanted to talk to you today about uh, one thing. Uh, you've noticed when you're taxiing out to the runway and all of a sudden the aircraft seems to go off the beaten path a little bit, come to a stop, and it just sits there. And you can see other aircraft passing on other taxiways or adjacent taxiways uh, towards the active runway. And you think, well, what's going on? Um, well, that situation happened to us just last week in Charlotte. 
So we were flying from uh, Charlotte to Boston in the evening. And the routing looked good. There was a little bit of thunderstorm activity uh, half about halfway point on our flight plan. And it looked like we were going to be able to pick through it, but the airway that we were cleared on uh, was shut down by ATC because of the weather. Uh, uh, it looks like enough airplanes were diverting far enough away from that airway that the FAA finally said, okay, uh, let's just shut it down. I should say ATC said, let's just shut it down. So as we were taxiing out, they had us park in an area that was kind of out of the way and write down our new clearance. So it gets a little busy up there uh, in the cockpit. So we're writing down clearances. We're sending those clearances to our dispatcher via the flight management computer which has the communication abilities to send messages to our dispatch at uh, Legacy Airlines. And uh, so we're, they're calculating, you know, do we have the fuel for this? What's the difference in the winds in that area and the weather? And meanwhile, we're plugging all that information into our flight data computers in the cockpit. We're also pulling up uh, weather charts on our electronic flight bags that have a Wi-Fi connection that is allowed uh, for certain things like weather apps and uh, charts and things like that. So it took a good 10, maybe 12 minutes to get everything plugged in, to re-verify all the numbers, all the performance data, and and then make sure that the routing, that the new routing that they gave us was going to keep us clear from the weather. So once that was all verified, then we were allowed to continue our taxi and head towards the runway. We took off uh, without any incident and the routing, the new routing that we had only added about 110 miles uh, total to our flight plan. So we actually ended up only losing about 10 minutes uh, of arrival time. So we were about 10 minutes behind schedule, uh, which is still uh, considered by the DOT to be on time. So we were able to make up a little bit of lost time on the ground, uh, in the air, uh, with ATC cooperating and allowing us to take a couple shortcuts and and um, cut the corner on some of that routing uh, as the weather uh, permitted. So the next time you taxi out and you're going towards the runway and all of a sudden the airplane kind of ventures off, comes to a stop, uh, you know, usually uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll make a PA, explain what's going on uh, after we can get all of the uh, paperwork in order and the computers all taken care of. Uh, but sometimes there just isn't much time and we're doing our best to, to keep an on-time uh, schedule so that our passengers can get to their destination and make their connections. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for There We Were. I like to share with you some stories from the flight deck uh, they've either happened to me or uh, had a pilot tell me this story and have, they've told me that, yeah, go ahead and use this story uh, and share it. And Or these are just stories that have been passed down on the line. Uh, and since that might be the case, they may not be 100% accurate. So as we're flying along, uh, we're finishing up with our, what we call a go-home leg. Now the go-home leg is the last flight of the sequence. 
And that's what we uh, joke around about is like the most dangerous lake because, you know, everybody wants to get home, uh, the flight crew, the flight attendants, what have you. Uh, they want to get there, get there safely and be on their way so they can just get home because we've been gone for three or four days. And so we recognize this uh, and we prevent that get there itis hazardous attitude from rearing its ugly head. So uh, as pilots, uh, prior to every flight, we have a, a briefing of potential threats um, prior to the takeoff briefing. And it's always the same thing. Any potential threats tonight? Oh, yeah, it's the go-home leg. So we have to be extra vigilant, you know, because anything that can go wrong seems to go wrong on the go-home leg. Well, so here we were uh, on the go-home leg a couple months back, and we're flying into Los Angeles late at night. We had an arrival time uh, that was estimated around 1130 in the evening. And it was a transcon flight. I believe we were coming in from uh, John F. Kennedy Airport. Uh, direct to Los Angeles. And so, you know, we, we had a couple breaks uh, there throughout the flight to, to get up and use the lavatory uh, to have a crew meal. And we were just about an hour prior to landing. And we've decided to take one final restroom break. So we notified the flight attendants that we would like to come out and, and do one last break. And so the captain looked at me and said, well, you know, go ahead. Why don't you go first? And then uh, when you come back, we'll swap out and, and I'll go, which is standard procedure. So he went ahead and donned his oxygen mask, which is a requirement uh, to when one pilot leaves the cockpit or their station uh, above 27,000 feet, the remaining pilot must don his or her oxygen mask. So he did. And the flight attendant that was available came up and uh, we we chatted for a second and uh, made sure that we were okay and, and I went and used the restroom. So it uh, took me a minute or so to, to take care of my business. And then as I came out, I'm picking up the phone to talk to him. I, I push the, the intercom button. And that sends a, a tone into the cockpit saying, hey, someone's trying to call you. So it's, it's going off. And at the same time, before he even picks up, I can hear through the cockpit door, traffic, traffic, climb, climb. And I think, oh my goodness, we're, we're at 36,000 feet. What the heck kind of traffic can be, can be alerting? It was our TCAS system, our traffic collision and avoidance system. When it potentially, uh, it's constantly monitoring other traffic, other transponders with altitude reporting. And when it detects traffic that will enter your uh, flight path within so many seconds down the road, it gives you, first it gives you a warning. And after the warning, it gives you what's called a resolution advisory. A resolution advisory says, hey, in order to not hit or come in conflict with this other aircraft, you're either need to climb or descend. And it was telling him to climb. So he went through the procedures, turned off the autopilot, turned off the flight directors, started to climb the aircraft. And I could feel all this and hear all this just from right there, from in the galley. So I hung up the receiver because I didn't want an additional distraction to, you know, hinder his his duties. So 
I could feel the airplane start to level off. It came back and settled. And not a, a second or more after that happened, the cockpit door came open. The flight attendant was there. She grabbed me. We, I went into the cockpit and shut the door. And I, I look at my captain and he's just like, he's sweating. He takes his mask off and he goes, oh my God, dude. And I said, oh my, I can't leave you alone for a second. What the heck did you do? He said, oh, it all happened at the same time. He said, uh, you called up with the, uh, you know, that you're ready to come back. So that thing's going off. That, that intercom uh, notification's going off. At the exact same time, I get a resolution advisory. So I had to reach up and, you know, turn off the autopilot and turn off the flight directors and, and manually manipulate the aircraft, which is what our standard operating procedure is. And so I started to climb, and then ATC's calling me, saying, uh, Legacy Airlines, uh, say altitude. And so he's like, well, I'm resolving a, a traffic to resolution advisory. I'm climbing. And, she, and the ATC controller, she says, oh, oh, uh, oh, man, that 737 must have blown through. Hold standby. So she was communicating with the other aircraft. And, uh, and so they resolution advisory uh, then expires, is, allows the captain to initiate a descent. Uh, he had to change a couple hundred feet of altitude, but it was a very uh, kind of heightened, stressful situation, especially you know while everything else was going on, all these other factors. But he handled himself very well, and he got the aircraft back, and you know he had a chit chat with the air, air traffic controller, and then I came back in, and so he's still kind of stunned. And we sat there for a little while, just talking about it, making sure that you know we were all okay, and and, and it was not really a major deal, but it was definitely startling for everyone involved. So he looks at me and he says, "Okay, I'm going to go to the restroom now, uh, but hey, you know." Make sure that you keep an eye out because this this is crazy, right? So he goes, he comes back, and he, when he came back, he had this smirk on his face. He goes, you know, I bet you those Foqua guys are going to call me. And if you don't know, Foqua is uh, the flight operations quality assurance. So uh, all the flights uh, data is constantly being transmitted back to uh, operations and they can see in real time anytime something is not right whether that be with uh, systems on the aircraft uh, engine parameters or uh, computers that are constantly monitoring anything from uh, the terrain to other aircraft to in this situation um, the TCAS system. So he goes, man, those guys are going to call me. The focal guys are going to call me. And you know what? I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm going to let it go to voicemail. And I looked at him and I said, well, why, why would you do that? And he said, well, I want them to call you because that's, that's the next person they're going to call is they're going to call you. And they're going to say, hey, can you tell me about the resolution advisory that you had the other night? And I want you to tell them, I don't know. I wasn't there because you weren't. And we had a chuckle about that. I was like, oh, wow, that's, he's like, yeah, man, it's going to be hilarious. Well, you know, he was joking. And, and actually, they never did call me. I'm sure if there was a phone call, he, he would have answered it right away. But it just was an amazing uh, event, amazing story. You know, here we are at 36,000 feet. The last thing you're thinking about is 
you know, having a, a traffic uh, uh, alert or traffic resolution advisory. And, and yet here we were. Um, and so uh, be vigilant uh, for, all, for all you aviators out there. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're in a, a congested area in a class Bravo airspace or you're in RVSM where that's the last thing you're going to think of, of having another aircraft in your path. So it all worked out and it uh, was a positive event at the end. We even had a chuckle uh, about the FOCA guys. Uh, they do a great job. I don't want to uh, diminish what their work um, and their constant uh, monitoring of the aircraft to make sure that, that we are operating in a, the safest possible way. So uh, yeah, great story. I think all we have time left for today is uh, a segment I like to call off the plate. Now, the off the plate is uh, what I like to talk about is either an establishment or a recipe uh, that I enjoy doing. I obviously uh, do love cooking um, and we'll get into that uh, maybe in future episodes. But the off the plate topic this week, I'd like to talk about the restaurant that I was able to uh, go and dine at with my captain over in Boston this last week, and it's called Kelly's. So Kelly's Roast Beef was established in uh, Massachusetts on Reverve Beach in 1951, and it has expanded to include five locations in the Massachusetts area. Uh, they've won uh, numerous awards and have been on the Food Network. PBS called their sandwiches You Will Like. Um, Saturday Night Live and on the silver screen, uh, Boston native Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's movie Good Will Hunting uh, featured Kelly's. Uh, it was a great place. I didn't go to the Kelly's uh, that was the original. I ended up going to a different one, uh, the one over in Medford, actually. And, you know, it's close to our layover hotel. It's a walking distance. And, you know, the lobster roll is the plate I traditionally get there. Uh, they do have a, uh, it's like, a, I think it's called a steak and surf or a surf and turf a sandwich plate. And that one was a roast beef sandwich with uh, some lobster uh, roll or lobster. Uh, yeah, lobster roll. It, it Absolutely great. Uh, absolutely great. Uh, this week, I ended up having uh, fried uh, scallops with fried clams over a bed of french fries. And, and it, it was definitely a cheat day for me. Um, not the type of heavy meal I usually have on an overnight. I usually try to keep it conservative. Um, I did skip my run that day, so you know it was definitely uh, a choice to to go with something that I don't normally get. Uh, but it was delicious. It was fresh, um, and it was a good choice. So if you're in the Boston area in Medford, highly recommend uh, Kelly's. That's a great uh, place to hang out and get a decent meal. And ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up 
episode one or flight one of the Squawk I Didn't podcast. I just want to say a big special thank you to Dom Z for the inspiration and the support to start this podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to our flight today. If so, please pay it forward by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Make sure to subscribe and follow the Squawk I Didn't podcast on whatever podcast platform you're following on. We also love receiving listener feedback. You can send it to us via an email or even an audio feedback to our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can also find us under Squawk Out In Podcast. And one final thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. It's an entirely different kind of flying.